Welcome to Have You Seen This, the podcast about obscure, overlooked, and misbegotten cinema. All discussions will be spoiler-heavy. You have been warned. Have you seen this? It was the sole effort of a dilettante filmmaker capturing his recurring nightmares. A horror film that was in production for several years until the auteur's untimely death from prolonged drug use. Welcome to Have You Seen This? I'm Jennifer Albright. And I'm Tim Heiderich. And tonight we're talking about a horror film that is a bit of a singular anomaly. It's called The Evil Within. It was made by one of the Gettys? Yeah. Um, not Getty Lee. A different <laughs> Getty. It was, it was directed not by a Canadian, but by Andrew Getty, who was a grandson of J. Paul Getty, who at one time was the richest man in the world. I've heard of him. And Andrew spent more than a decade putting together his singular horror vision. This has been in production since like 2002, yeah? Yeah, it's insane. And it was finished two years ago, only recently dropped onto Amazon Video, yeah. where you can rent it or purchase it. Yeah, un- unlike a lot of other movies that we review, well, some other movies, like you can actually watch a legitimate copy of it. Yeah, and I have to say, like, go watch this. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. Uh, considering, well, there are a lot of other uh, singular visionary dilettante directors out there, like Tommy Wiseau or James Wynn. <laughs> they're they're bottomlessly terrible. Like they aren't good at what they do. But this is this is a cut above, I would say. Gareth Edwards, the director of Monsters, which is another like low budget horror movie that was in production for ages, or like the guy who did Open Water, like that. That's the kind of like indie director that you want to see more of. The one who does something unique with limited resources and really puts a lot of time and effort into it. But anyway, the reason that I um, bring up Oren Pelly, the Paranormal Activity guy, is because. He and Andrew Getty were both obviously guys with a little bit of money, or in Andrew Getty's case, a lot of money. So I heard, They were able to film in their own house, get gear and crew and whatnot. But while I think that Oren Pelly should probably be stoned to death for unleashing the current wave of garbage found footage horror movies, Andrew Getty is actually a genuine auteur. And there aren't very many of those because of the collaborative nature of filmmaking. But this guy basically had control over all the aspects of production. Yeah, and I think that what separates him from a lot of other uh, sort of cheap filmmakers is that I I don't find his work, his work, his, his body of work being one film. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that it's the difficulty is um, there are some people who like, they will go out to make a movie as a goal unto itself rather than saying here's a story i want to tell here here's i have a vision that i want to convey yeah because this guy was definitely driven yeah because a lot of it is like oh i want to make you know bottomlessly terrible hitchcock ripoffs or i want to find a way to use the remodeling of my home as a tax write-off or something like that (laughs) and and yeah like this he did have a vision and he had an interesting way of, of showing it which which is commendable yeah and unfortunately we're never going to get to see the development of that style because he passed away before the movie was released. Andrew was a hard-living guy, troubled like a lot of people in the Getty family. He had a fondness for drugs, Mm -hmm. um, problematic women, 
<laughs> and so uh, like they they're like casually racist or <laughs> <laughs> well apparently he had a little bit of a savior complex oh yeah okay yeah i, I understand that <laughs> <laughs> um so his passions were basically drugs women and filmmaking and again like it's not a bad way to be i mean you know i'm kind of jealous in a way yeah because what else do i want out of life because and it shows in the movie he had a lot of resources to pour into this project in fact um he pretty much went broke making it and at the time of his death um which was i believe from a bleeding ulcer on top of unfettered drug use so um, they weren't like prescription drugs they were, he wasn't taking medication for his ulcer i take it no i'm pretty sure he took prescription drugs too <laughs> but his real uh passion was meth oh okay well you need that when you're you know kind of when you're a, a nascent director and you you've got a lot of hats to wear uh, i i guess so <laughs> yeah, i don't know so um you chase the dragon on these 16 hour days but yeah i would say well um it, this isn't the greatest horror film I've ever seen, but it is really unique and kind of disturbed me. And I was thinking about it for a while after I finished watching it. It's flawed, but there are good things in it. What I think he should have done was a lot of smaller budget shorts to refine his skill and to refine his craft. And and it may have been a, a disadvantage of his, like maybe he only had one idea and this was it. And I mean, good for him for getting it out there, but... You can tell that this would have been stronger if he had had more practice, maybe if he'd had more education or more opportunities to kind of refine what he's doing, because there are a lot of good ideas in the script. There's also some really clunky dialogue and some things that just kind of don't land. So so there are good things in it. It's just it needs like two or more passes in, to, to really, I think, make it, you know, like a, a proper, like... Like like a normal mainstream popular horror film. Um, maybe I've rotted my brain by watching too much schlock and like my expectations are really low. Okay. But this movie was like way more solid than your standard like Netflix um, space filler. Yeah, well, you know what I mean. Well, yeah, that's because a lot of those are just like a cash grab. Like yeah. like you say, it's it's a space filler. It isn't someone with a passion to make a film. It isn't anyone who has like a driving. Uh, reason to express themselves creatively. It's someone going, hey, I think we can do something with zombies and maybe, you know, we can earn back some of our uh, initial investment. And like, that's it. Yeah, because this movie... Maybe we can get Michael Madsen for it. This movie definitely felt personal. The I... capsule summary is a developmentally disturbed okay. young man <laughs> who is the brother of a rich guy with a girlfriend played by Diz from uh, Starship Troopers. Yes, Dina Meyer. Uh, is plagued by nightmares and visions of a terrifying devil man who urges him to kill. And I've, I, I need to apologize for not having that guy's name at the ready because when you see him, you'll instantly recognize Michael him. Berryman. Michael Berryman. Yeah, he's a... Yeah, he's an iconic character actor. Yes. Because he, he just has a, a funny look about him. Yeah, no, he he has a face that's made for a horror film. But anyway, um, the basic story is a developmentally disabled young man is plagued with nightmares and visions urging him to kill. Yeah. 
And then he does so. And I think that it's well told. There are, again, like, the reason that I think that there are some, that it needs, like, another couple of, you know, a couple of passes to the, to the script is that there are some kind of cliche things in there that, that don't really go over that great. Like, you know, the protagonist as a kind of, you know, developmentally disturbed individual. My first thought when I saw it was, oh, he's playing a movie retard. Yeah, yeah. Again, and I, like, I use the phrase advisedly. It's the kind of thing where it's like, oh, you know, you know how to play someone who's, you know, uh, kind of mentally handicapped. You know, you kind of hold your arm like, then you talk like this, and you're, you know, you're you're a movie retard. Yeah, and again, it's, like, <laughs> it's not it's not especially nuanced. It's a kind of a trope. But... Well, uh, props to Tropic Thunder for like, you know, really putting. <laughs> Like putting a spotlight on that, yeah. Because yeah, it's like you you'd really only do this like as like for an Oscar or for like as a challenge as an actor. Because again, like it's it seems kind of like a lazy, I, I don't know, out like a way to not develop the character more fully, which I think is is something that this script actually has trouble with, and that not only are they saying, well, we need to keep this character who's kind of above suspicion because, you know, no one thinks that he's actually dangerous. But meanwhile, like, he's got, you know, these dark thoughts going on inside. And then there's yeah, his, what, brother caretaker who's, like... he's Sean he's, Patrick Flannery is the rich older brother. Yeah, he's... he's who has secrets of his own. He, he's cut from the same cloth as, like, kind of an Aaron Eckhart, like, in the Company of Men kind of, like, type A asshole. But the and the thing is is that he's not a one-dimensional character, but because he also has, you know, uh, guilt feelings mm-hmm. uh, for um, the the state of his brother, and he feels like you know he's a caretaker of his brother as well. I mean, maybe that's the director's sort of influence about have to take care of these things. That's interesting. I mean, he's he's a multi-dimensional character. There are facets to this character. They just don't really come off very smoothly. And I think that, unfortunately, Dina Meyer's character is the one who kind of, like, has the least to work with. Her role is basically she's John's girlfriend. Yeah, she's given short shrift a little bit. And I thought that they were going to really take it in a really obvious direction. You know, because obviously, like, you know... She wants to get married and, you know, John doesn't want to get married, you know, because he feels like he needs to to care for his brother instead and blah, blah, blah. But um, there's that part where she's like reading him the riot act at dinner. Yeah. Because she thinks he was going to give her an engagement ring and he just, oh, he just gave her diamond earrings. And then um, she's getting mad and then they cut to this extreme close up of a spider. Uh Uh-huh. And... The quote is, the narrator of the nature documentary with the spider, and it says, to the female, the mate is merely food. Right, yeah. And it's like, oh, I get it. <laughs> and um, there are some of those, like, strange, like, personal aspects to the film, which I think, you know, it was maybe, like, Andrew Getty, like, working some shit out because um, of the few facts that came out about his personal life, like, after his death, was one of them was that he tended to take on these very troubled women with whom he had these incredibly tempestuous relationships. Because, you know, and again, like, you know, because he's a wealthy heir, and I'm sure that, you know, that he attracted people who may have been perceived as as users or whatever. I I think that's giving it too much credit. I think that she's just a movie girlfriend. She's there to be the foil of the sort of uh, secondary character in this. She's there to just provide conflict. Well, 
it's weird because, um, like, I would say that, except that she does that weird, like, left turn towards the end where suddenly she's like, oh, well, you know, I'll move into your house and we'll take care of Dennis. That's just character stuff. That's saying, that that is by the number of screenwriting saying, okay, we need to make this uh, antagonist now sympathetic, so then you're bothered when she gets killed off. In a brutal scene, by the way. Yeah. Which again, it's it's neat. Like they are the directors doing interesting, creative things in in this horror film. It feels like maybe the structure and some of the elementary stuff is really sort of by the numbers and mundane. But he does have a creative spin on it. He has an interesting way of telling it. And again, like it doesn't all fit together perfectly, but there are creative things here. Yeah, because the story again is fairly tropey and standard yeah um tropey yeah that's a good way of putting it but i want to i think you should talk more about like what his inspiration is for this film the basic jumping off point for this movie was that the filmmaker was plagued by really horrible disturbing dreams when he was young and um the quote uh, from a friend of his is that they were so shocking to him that he didn't think they came from him. And there are a lot of things in the dream sequences which really do uh, draw from, you know, those ex- those common experiences that we all have when we dream, things like sleep paralysis. Or yeah, and I think that is jerking definitely... awake and stuff like that. Yeah, that's really well done too. That is definitely addressed because in the first sort of contemporary scene, because there's like this earlier flashback dream sequence thing that kind of sets up the film. That's like the first 10 minutes of it, and I will get into that. But when we're first introduced to the adult version of, you know, this developmentally damaged character. Dennis. Dennis. Uh, it's when this sort of, uh, what do they, they call him like corpse or the body? I forget what he's listed as in this, but you know, when like this creature shows up and he like crawls inside him, it is like a reenactment of sleep paralysis because he basically has like this, this gray monstrous creature holding him down and, you know, and he's unable to escape. So yeah, it does hit on a lot of interesting fears that have to do with sleep and nightmares. And that that really gets into what what's kind of uneven about this movie is that there is really good source material. There's a really good inspiration because it it makes for a lot of really cool set pieces, basically. Like the, the thing where he's menaced by a giant spider and there's so many uses of, of mirrors and it's like you think you're looking at a thing, but it's not the thing. It's the opposite of it. And, and it really... Yeah, it, mirrors in a kind of lady from Shanghai climactic scene sense are a common... Yeah, and like, you know, him waking up for a, from a dream only to find out that he's still dreaming and... In fact, what kind of kicks off the story is a mirror. A yeah. mirror that he that his brother, for whatever reason, insists on putting in his bedroom that he doesn't want there. Again, it's, that's kind of a lazy part of the screenwriting, but like it, it, it's maybe it's just that the the plot is a framework on which to hang all these interesting set pieces. Yeah, because the dream sequences have the feel of something that the filmmaker maybe like chewed over in his mind for like a great deal of time, spent a lot of time thinking about. Makes me feel bad for the guy because he could not possibly have slept well if this is his um, relationship with sleep. I mean, because not only do you have 
the nightmares and the night terrors and the sleep paralysis. There's also a point in the dream where Dennis decides that he's just not going to go to sleep. And there's that, and I think, you know, most of us have had a similar experience where you've woken up kind of freaked out and you, you know, you don't even want to move in your bed. Yeah. It's, you know, it's you're a, like, I really, really don't want to close my eyes again. Yeah. And it, it's a really cool, I guess, meditation on that because if you if you want to think about you know dreams and nightmares like there are these things that are completely engrossing and utterly terrifying and also completely harmless yeah and i i mean the whole movie um kind of takes place in this world of ambiguity yeah and even though i'm i'm kind of uh running him down for for the i guess the the by the numbers ness of the of the script i will have to say that there are a lot of well realized ideas in it they're uh, not just the the dream sequences that that you know he those were coming from a very well realized concrete place like something that like he he had a really good vision of what these things were were supposed to were supposed to look like and how they're supposed to feel. The thing that I find compelling about it is the the meta narrative that's going on in the story because it isn't just it isn't just you have a nightmare and you wake up. It's that you have a nightmare where you are waking up from a nightmare and he he keeps going back to kind of this this theme of uncertainty which i really respond to even in in the beginning he has this this dream flashback to him with his mother you know when he's a kid going on going to a a carnival which is like this this carnival from purgatory basically it's yeah not, in the middle of a in the middle of like cracked desert yeah yeah like the salt flats someone yes. had, someone had put up a carnival and it blows my fucking mind that apparently this guy rented like a fucking carnival haunted house well he could and ticket booth and yeah. hauled them out to the desert so you know respect right yeah practical <laughs> effects but please yeah so so it's him when it's a dream of him when he's a kid with his mother who looks like jackie o for whatever reason and they go on into this haunted house and the haunted house is is called what like the scariest ride ever It, it is something that's really purposefully on the nose like that and you know he's getting into the cart um you know with his mom the ride operator is the um is a, a made up version of the same guy who comes to appear to him in his dreams again? Michael Berryman. Thank you. And and you know he's even warning him. And he's like you know hey like are you sure you want to go on this ride? You know because that name's no joke. And ultimately he does. And he goes on the ride. And the ride is is boring and nothing happens. There's literally nothing. Yeah. It's like they go through the the tunnel and they come back around and yeah. they come out and that's it. Yeah, it's just just a uh, just a, a loop. And then and then they get off the ride and so he's walking with his mom. He's like, "We should ask for our money back. That was a ripoff. What the hell was that all about?" We got off the ride and and they didn't even scare us. Then his mom turns to him and is like, "Are you sure the ride is over?" Ah. And that's that I really respond to. Like, yes. That, and that oh, and um, then she takes off her glasses and she doesn't have eyes. There are two more mouths. Because ah! because why the fuck not? Yeah, and then that is a a motif which not not the eyes, but the what makes you think the ride is over. Yeah, uh, which loops back and comes back around at the end of the film. Yeah, and he does so in a great way, like in in I want to say in like time and space, and that it isn't. The ride doesn't have a definitive end to it. It's it's a thing that keeps going even after you think it's over. Just like waking up from a nightmare only to find you're still having a nightmare. Yes. And the movie does that to good effect in a scene that is um, spoiled in the trailer where, you know, the the 
where Dennis is, you know, talking to his older brother and, you know, his, his adult caretaker. And he's like, oh, I had this, you know, awful dream and it was so bad. It's like something that couldn't have even come from me, which again is the director sort of exercising his own demons, I would say. And, you know, the brother's like, oh, you know, you can't imagine, you know, who would, who would tell you that someone like me, it turns around and it's the guy. Ah! So it was, it, and it's so good because it's, it's something that, I mean, I didn't see coming because there's just it, because it's just played so normally just as a regular scene and it isn't even like uh, tipped off as an odd scene and until like that just that jump scare and i i think that's great he's doing things where he you you think that that you're safe and you think the ride is over but it's not and he he then flips that with the use of mirrors because the the mirror is representing the alter ego of dennis the uh the one who's still like smart and malicious and and trapped kind of in this mirror mirror universe. I mean, not to say that it's a parallel universe, to say that it's just you know it's his reflection. It's the other. It's his dark half. They call it the dark place. Yeah, the dark place. But then there's there's a switch where he comes through the mirror and pulls Dennis into the other side. So now the the evil version is is on the wrong side of the mirror and Dennis is in the dark side. And and that's great because it's 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 inexplicable. I don't know. Yeah, because the movie does really make leave you feeling unsettled because the borders are constantly shifting and the scenes are kind of like nesting boxes one yeah. and the other. It comes from a really simple <clears throat> visual gag, basically, of just setting up two mirrors opposite each other, and you know you have a mirror reflecting a mirror, and they just kind of extend onto infinity. And I wonder if it's just, you know, the director, perhaps on drugs, just kind of stared into that for maybe just a little too long. And then he, until he finally hit on something where, you know, maybe he's just thinking like, am am I looking at the reflection or is the reflection looking at me? What's the reflection of my reflection? Like, who's the real me? It ties into a theme which I liked, which I thought I wish had been maybe a little better developed because it really only comes in at the end. At first, we don't really get a sense of, like, precisely why Dennis is the way he is. Mm -hmm. You know, like, oh, well, he's, you know, he's mentally handicapped, uh, disabled, you know. But um, what we learn toward the end of the film is that his brother tells a story about how he's fighting with Dennis and laid him out with one punch. Yeah. And that pretty much led to Dennis being in a coma. Yeah, that knocked him down the stairs and yes. yeah, caused and you're brain like, damage. Oh my god, that's terrible. No wonder he feels so guilty. But and this is the part I really like, because it plays on that idea of um, you know, kind of like the lies that we tell ourselves and to other people, mm-hmm. you know, to kind of make ourselves feel better. Um, the part that John left out is that apparently he maybe didn't just land one punch on his brother. You know, he maybe beat him a little harder Yeah. than he revealed in the story. And I really like that um, element of, you know, family secrets and, you know, kind of, you know, someone tells you a story, but they're not telling you the whole story. Yeah. Yeah, it's like using the passive voice in a story. It's like, yeah, you know, mistakes were made. Yeah, and, you know, the... And kind of builds up to this really great, like, grand guignol. set piece, yeah. Yeah, like, where um, there are, like, stop-motion puppets and, like, kind of, like, animatronic-looking effects. Where, and again, like, you don't know if it's, like, happening in a dream because you're like, how the 
fuck did Dennis do all this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's really like this kind of psychotic fugue towards the end, which again, um, you watch this whole thing play out and then you watch it from the reflection in a mirror and you're saying like, is this is this actually happening? Is this like some, is this a nightmare? Is this something from, you know, the dark side? Is it just some kind of psychotic break? Or did we just see that and that really happened? Yeah. And who's to say, but I mean, the the exciting thing is that just as with the nightmares, it's like, well, he took us to that place, yeah. whether it really happened or not. It's like, this is a horrifying to experience. Yeah, and I like um, that the movie doesn't really pull its punches. Yeah. I mean, because, you know... Dennis starts off by killing animals. Yeah. Which is maybe, that's, I know that's a little bit of a sticking point for a lot of people. <laughs> I mean, it's not really explicit, but, you know, he does start off by killing a cat and by small dogs. Yeah. Moves on to kids. Yeah. And you I know. love that the dead kids and animals, like, come, like, they figure into the movie later. Yeah. And I well, also. Well, I know you didn't mind the part where he killed the cat. Oh, that's hardly even evil. What I liked is his mirror persona coming up with an excuse for why he's supposed to kill. And I love how sound the internal logic is on this. It isn't just, we need to have him start killing small animals because whatever, it gets us to the next plot point. It's saying, you know, they want you to kill animals. There's just, there's this made up rule that you're not supposed to do it. But because like his whole goal is to get smarter for for whatever reason, maybe to to, to be himself again. Well, because um, and so he's saying like, well, once you know that these rules aren't real, then it shows that you're getting smarter because you know that you can break some of these rules. Yeah, it's like established kind of early on that, um, and I think there is there actually is some good character writing in this film. Oh, uh, there is. There are a lot of even his brother. He's not yeah, one dimensional. There are. You know, like a lot, like you said, a lot of the dialogue is clunky. Um, I think the fact that um, he you're was... never gonna marry me, are you? <laughs> like that. The f- now the fact that he was able to get decent actors mm-hmm. like puts stuff like that across much better. Yeah, because the actors do like really creditable work. That's what the what actors they, because for, like yeah. those scenes would have just fallen completely fucking flat. Yeah. with your standard like B or C movie cast. Oh yeah. Um, which is probably, I mean, I felt like they were the reason I was able to tolerate a lot of that stuff. Cause mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of like kind of florid, repetitive dialogue. One thing that I noticed near the beginning is like, you know, a lot of the characters like sound like each other. Like they just sound like the author's voice. Hmm. Like, cause this is how he talks. Yeah. You know, and kind of a, um, a very literate, almost overeducated self contemplating way. Yeah. You know, the way, the way somebody talks when they've gone to a lot of therapy <laughs> Not hating, just saying. No, well, if you know, if I may continue to interrupt you, <laughs> that is that's tough because I I would say the first ten minutes of the movie are there are he's laying some important groundwork, but they're also some of the most like laden, pretentious first year film student stuff like in the entire movie. There's like some very Lynchian rip off stuff. There is. 10 minutes of voiceover of like the most like purple self-aggrandizing like prose there like he uses joie de vivre 
like mise-en-scene. Mise-en-scene. You should not hear that word outside of an introduction to film class. It really gives me kind of a of a picture of like Andrew Getty. I mean, you and I have both been to film school, so yeah. we know. It's really not a phrase that you use unless you spent way too much fucking time studying and obsessing yeah. over cinema. That would be my problem with, with the movie. And the interesting thing is that you see the movie evolves as it goes on. I mean, I'm assuming that he shot it in order and possibly not. But like the first 10 minutes, again, very laden, very effects heavy, um, pretentious. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, with he has all these really elaborate, eye-catching, not necessarily like technically skilled visuals but it, it's kind of like he's showboating. Yes. Because they to have all these great visuals and then to dump voiceover on top of that, there's a way to combine those that he isn't doing. Like you can tell a story visually without having to have like this this really just pretentious voiceover it's a little from bit, like the inner monologue of Dennis. Yeah, it's a little bit like he was maybe too in love with that writing to let it go. He's like, oh no, I have to use this because it's so good. Oh man, yeah, and that's tough because it's not. Yeah, like, it's not the best part of the movie. No, and um, you might you might be tempted to be like, what the fuck, dude? You know, but yeah. it you know the movie rewards you if you stick with it. And you know, like I was saying, you know, in spite of those flaws right off the bat. Um, and some of the clunkiness of his writing. He actually does creditable work like setting up these characters. The kind of put-upon put girlfriend mm-hmm. is like a pretty standard role. Yeah. Um, you know, sorry, Dina Meyer. Um, but she does, she does a great job. She does the best she with does, what she has. She does yeah. have some, some nice moments later in the film. I liked that he took time with John and Dennis to develop their characters. And at first, I was like, this is a little weird because it almost feels like we have two protagonists, mm-hmm. you know, which almost made me wonder if, um, and again, this being such a personal project, that these weren't maybe two aspects of a filmmaker. You know, you have, like, two rich kids, you know, one kind of needs to be taken care of, the other one is, you know, outwardly successful but actually like not really making it like he's in therapy like he actually can't afford the car he drives yeah you know he wants to sell his house you know all these seem to be aspects of the filmmaker and i feel like he really poured a lot of himself into both characters it does make for compelling work because there's definitely a a solid creative force behind these if anything it's just that maybe the work is kind of too close to his heart and he is too inexperienced to to really pull it off because there's so much good stuff in here. Mm-hmm. But again, there are sort of basic things that I think you can only get better at with experience and maybe with with some some distance or perspective. Because again, like that beginning, like it's, it's a real tour de force. There's a lot going on. He, he's put a lot of time into it. But it's also like you might want to go back and do like another pass on this to, to see like, can I be a better visual storyteller? Is there a way that I can establish these characters without having to just like blah, blah, blah for, for literally 10 minutes it goes on. I don't mind movies that are that character heavy, but you know, it has to be like, you know, like you have to have a little bit of craft. Yeah. Yeah. Know. Maybe that's what it is. It's just lacking in craft. Um, and... 
you know, as you watch it, like knowing the backstory of the filmmaker, you kind of go like, oh yeah, like this really does have the feel of something which was painstakingly fussed over. Yeah. Like over a long period of time, like, you know, that was the first thing I thought of when I saw those opening kind of stop motion animation shots. Mm-hmm. It's like, this guy spent a lot of time on these. Yeah. Um, he built a like a passion whole... project. He built a whole bunch of animatronic figures for a scene at a, a restaurant, like a oh. family <laughs> restaurant, like including an octopus that plays the drums. That's good nightmare fuel, yeah. And, uh, you know, animatronics come into play. Yeah. At the end, like, um, ob- and obviously this was kind of, this was a personal, like, pet obsession of the director. Mm-hmm. It would be like if I made a movie and, like, spent a lot of time talking about commercial aviation. Yeah. And, like, so, so why is the horse flying a plane? Like, no, that's not important. <laughs> um, yeah, so you can, you can tell he put a lot of himself in there. And, again, like, the scene, like, when they go to, you know, what's not, you know, a great set, but it does have, you know, nice animatronics and everything. Um, this is, scene also does have nudity in it. I don't think he was, um, he's um, maybe a better engineer than a, and fabricator than a sculptor. I can believe that. I would put it that way. Anyway, these, I, I think it's great because, like, these animatronics are, like, pure nightmare fuel. Yeah. So it's it's great that the kid who has troubling nightmares wants to go to... It's like a Chuck E. Cheese, but with just these, these like, Five Nights at Freddy's-looking sort of yeah. animatronic characters. It's like they're, they're fucking scarier than Five Nights at Freddy's characters. <laughs> like, ugh. Yeah, and, uh, and that's... That's a cool scene, too, because also, you know, Dennis gets frustrated over, you know, over his brother's girlfriend's presence because, you know, he kind of, like, thinks that she wants to get him out of the picture so his brother can have his life back. Then he, like, runs off to the bathroom and straight up kills a dude. Yeah. Or maybe he didn't. Maybe, I don't know, maybe he, like, blacked out or whatever because the next scene is him meeting the girl from the ice cream parlor he has a crush on who he got killed like two scenes ago and she like proceeds to seduce him before revealing that she's a corpse and all of her insides are mush from the car accident and then she turns into like some uh, ungodly crab creature yeah it's kind of like like the spider walk from the exorcist but done in like prosthetics yeah, because um, so, yeah, like, in horror, nothing is scary than, scarier than a head that turns all the way around. <laughs> being Yeah, being chased by a spider-walking nude woman. Yeah. So, like, yeah. Like, oh, yeah, here you like tits and pussy, here you go. Yeah. Ah! <laughs> Everything's in the wrong place. <laughs> Again, a lot of neat visuals and a lot of interesting set pieces, although that kind of betrays the, the, the weakness of the film in that, yes, it is a lot of good set pieces, but the story, I think, is a little rote. It's very stock. Yeah, and... And that kind of, again, might be the the director losing perspective of his own vision because, again, whether you're having a dream or whether you're having a nightmare, you are very much in the moment. You aren't aware of it being a, a dream or anything. Like, these are, these are, you're experiencing sort of this phenomenal event that you aren't able to, to, to pull yourself away from, much like getting wrapped up in a story or watching a movie and reacting to that. But the problem with that is that dreams don't have to have any sort of internal logic or consistency, and that follows into this film. We have a lot of cool set pieces. We have a lot of <coughs> neat visuals and interesting moments, but 
while they are compelling on their own, sometimes they don't necessarily, they don't build momentum in the way that a story, like that a movie should. They have a lot of cool things that ratchet up the tension and are disturbing and visually arresting, but the movie does kind of meander on its plot. There's a little bit of confusion just from the dream format. Yeah. Um, it, it's like a- when he when he goes to attack the girl that he has the crush on, like the way he makes his appearance. Yeah. Like when he kills her is it's after he's left the store. Yeah. And then suddenly he lunges out of a cabinet near the ceiling, like upside down. Yeah, he, he kinda like flips toward her and is like he How the l- fuck did that happen? Yeah, he flips out onto the ceiling and then jumps down. Yeah. Which, I don't know how that works, but <laughs> maybe, again, maybe it's one of those things that happens in a dream that you're like, wow, that's weird. Yeah. Um, I feel like this probably happened to him in a dream and he used to. It could very well be, which, again, is why it, like it's such a visually rich movie because there are all these weird details in it that he that came really from resonate. somewhere. Yeah. But the tough thing is is that it's like having someone describe their dream to you. Yeah. And it's like, oh, like it, it couldn't be any less interesting to the person <laughs> hearing the dream than it is interesting to the person telling it. Yeah, which is what perhaps why these very rich visual sequences are grafted onto this kind of rote story. Uh, yeah. You know, because initially, the initial conceit of the film, um, it was called The Storyteller. Because Getty's initial concept was that there was a storyteller somewhere creating these dreams, which didn't seem to come from him. And that that was obviously something that was discarded. I, I, I Obviously, the title of the storyteller doesn't work, but I think The Evil Within is kind of a terrible title as well. Yeah, again, like, like you say, there's some craft to it that needs to be done. Like, if you saw this on Netflix, you'd be like, oh, God, what is this piece of shit? Yeah, until you get to the end, you're like, what? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because, no, it's definitely like, um, and I don't know if it's the the care that he took with it or the fact that so much of the material was pulled directly from his own life. Yeah. But it's head and shoulders above the usual crap that you see scrolling through your watch list. It shows that there is some of him in this film. Well, it has that kind of boutique feel that you get where someone isn't necessarily pulling very much from other artists. I mean, he does, Yeah. but he doesn't. Um, Like, it has a lot of horror tropes, but and in some ways it's well constructed, but in other ways it's kind of like he's like, oh well, yeah, like I know how you write a movie. You know, you got your three act structure, and you know yeah. you set up these characters and they do this, and it's like it's like first year screenwriting. If he had time to build up to you know his opus rather than just dive right in, I think that it, that it would have been the better for it, because then he would have had a chance to make those mistakes and learn those lessons before really getting onto the thing that mattered the most to him, which is clearly this work. Yeah. And you know, I could be completely conjecturing, but I kind of feel like he would have been like, why would I make short? Like I'm going to make a feature, you know, like, no, this is good. Yeah. It's I'm like, going to do this. No, like just because <laughs> you're a good driver. You don't like automatically into yourself in the Indy 500. Yeah. But, and 
And again, like, it really is a shame because I would be curious to see where he would have gone uh, with a little more experience and, you know, outside direction. Yeah, I think and he it sort kind of, of, could have become a cult director off of this. It, it's, it's kind of uneven and, and it's lacking in maybe some artistry, but you'll notice that the movie does undergo an evolution of its own. It's very effects-heavy, very first-year student film in the beginning, and then it, it relies less on those gimmicks because those effects, while arresting, don't feel like they advance the plot. And in, in that way, I think they're just, they're just gimmicky. While being inventive, they, they aren't necessarily useful. There's less of that as the film goes on, as the story starts to take over. So then the story starts to do more of the heavy lifting rather than the crazy visuals. And that's good because then when things are happening, like when practical effects are happening later in the film, they're grounded in a kind of reality. They're grounded in the story. And it's the two things fit together. So I want to say that just over the course of making this film, he became a better filmmaker. The ideas in it, I think, are really good, especially the conversations that Dennis has with his mirror self because it kind of keeps you off balance as to who this nemesis of his is. Like, is it himself? Is this is it this outside force? Because I think that it creates this really cool conflict because his goal is to get smarter. Like, he wants to be smart again. He wants to show that he isn't a, uh, a drag on his brother. He isn't a burden. He can be normal he can be a drooling retard a drooling retard yeah yeah that's he um yeah because he's worried that you know the um that um you know dina meyer wants to um wants to get him out of you know his brother's life because you know you don't want a drooling you know masturbating retard in it and i think it's funny because like he says that to himself and then it cuts to the scene of uh him and her at dinner and I, I just kind of imagine a voiceover saying, hey, you know, maybe you ever think of cutting that uh, masturbating, drooling retard out of your life? <laughs> <laughs> just like, damn it, I knew it. <laughs> but um, so his goal is to get smarter. But it's cool because what if him getting smarter is the worst thing for him? Like, what if the thing he wants is bad? Yeah, because as he gets craftier... Yeah. He's able to accomplish worse and worse deeds. Yeah, he becomes more more of a monster in it. And eventually he's able to build his little funhouse of horrors. Yeah. So he glues his brother to the chair to watch. Yeah. And and that that's such a cool concept for this is that you know, how do you fight a monster that's yourself? Like you're you're acting at your own cross purpose. And which again like um maybe played into the filmmaker's problems with addiction. And he does explicitly bring up an addiction metaphor late in the film where he says, Dennis's evil self says to him, you know, you go too long without killing and the nightmares start, Dennis. Yeah. You know, and it's made really explicit at that point where... It's kind of the DTs. Yeah, the rush of killing is like not... It becomes less and less effective and you need to do more and worse stuff yeah to keep that rush going yeah so he's, he's found a creative outlet to express his own demons which is really commendable i think yeah. as an artist i do like how again so much of the structure of the film keeps you off balance and just in terms of like is this a dream is this an imagined monster or is it a real external force what kind of control does it exert because you have a sense that there's 
you know, Dennis and, you know, evil mirror Dennis, and they're kind of uh, struggling, you know, for, for, for power there until eventually, you know, evil Dennis pulls real Dennis into the mirror and switches places with him. And it's like, well, now we are quite literally through the looking glass. And not only that, then there's, what do you say his brother's name is? John? John. John and Dina Meyer. I didn't even bother to learn her character's name. Lydia. Lydia. Oh, that's a lovely name. <laughs> Can I just say that Dina Meyer is a decade older than me and she looks a decade younger? It, it's almost like it's her job to look <laughs> presentable and attractive. That bitch, you know. Good for her. Respect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a, there's a point where the two of them are driving around and he acknowledges how they haven't recognized anyone like all day. Yeah, like, and I was hoping you would, that we would come around to that because... I was a little confused by that. Like, are, are we being told that we're basically in a dreamscape? That's, that's, the, that's confusing. And that could kind of cut either way. Like, either it's confusing and you're like, well, this thing is never explained. Or it's something that is part of something bigger that we just don't get to. And I don't know. The way that, it, that it's... I mean, it is creepy as fuck. Yeah, it's, it's creepy. There are a lot of cool, creepy things in this movie. I feel like I've had dreams like that that take place in like weirdly depopulated settings. Yeah, I do want to talk more about that scene where, uh, where, where they don't recognize anyone around, around town. Sure. Because not only do they use that, that kind of freak character actor, the one who played the giant in Big Fish, he, gets his, he has like a cameo, basically. Yeah. Yeah, obviously and, cast for his unsettling appearance. Right. Yeah. Much like Michael Berryman. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so not just him, but there is the scene where you know Dina Meyer's like, "Hey, let's stop for some ice cream." For whatever reason, they go to the ice cream place to find that you know that girl isn't there anymore and she's dead. But then also, like the two of them are having another conversation. And again, like there are neat touches in this script because was it John has like that tell of when he starts tapping the coin. Yeah. And it's cool too because you'll be watching a scene, hearing this tapping, this is that is, you know, thus far unmotivated. Like you're aware of it, but you have no idea where it's coming from until the characters draw attention to it. And it's like, oh, by the way, you've been tapping that coin this whole time. He's he's using audiovisual elements to convey character, and he's doing it in a way that isn't immediately obvious. That then you go, oh, that's what that thing was. So John and Lydia are out, and then like they stop, and and John thinks he recognizes a guy who's not the guy that he thought he was, and again, like. This is primarily a horror film, but this scene is straight up comedy because of just how checked out this one character is of his role. I found it a delight because he's a guy sitting like in a corner coffee shop with a shirt that reads fuck you on it. <laughs> he, he couldn't give less of a fuck in the conversation he's having with John. Yeah, because his affect was so weird that yeah. I assumed that that uh, Getty had cast one of his friends. Yeah. But he's actually it's like a character actor um, with a really long career. His name is uh, Tim Bagley. He's got like this kind of like Jason Lee, like, you know, just couldn't give less of a fuck. But like, and again, like he's great in this scene because uh, John's trying to, to, trying to talk to him about how, you know, Dennis got these like taxidermy books or like dvds and dennis made up a lie he's like oh these aren't mine my bag got switched with some other guy and 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 yeah like he had my books and these are really his and then you know then john's mentioning that to this fuck you guy pete and and then 
he's like, oh yeah, and he's saying that like you know he has the the wrong books, and the other one guy has has his books instead, and and Pete's like, oh yeah, yeah. So he's he's uh, suddenly taking up carpentry and taxidermy, but then he has the the wrong books. Like that's the weird part. He's just like, yeah, it, it, he he couldn't possibly do, be doing this with the wrong books. <laughs> just and he has like just this like. Uh, like unwarranted hostility that is just a joy to watch. And yeah, so that whole scene, it's, it's like David Letterman's scene in Cabin Boy. Like, <laughs> Would you like to buy a monkey? Yeah, yeah. Hey, hey, Jennifer, come back here. Let me talk to you a second. <laughs> so that, and that scene is just enjoyable on that level. And it's nice that like that is, there's actually a cool plot moment there too, because it's Lydia's characters turned around and she's like, yeah, I'm going to move in with you and we're going to be a big happy family. You hang out here for whatever reason that was, that actually made sense. And I'm going to, you know, go home and, and get things started. And that's after talking to this, this Pete asshole guy. He's like, no, it turns out that Dennis is actually really crazy. And then you're like, oh, and Lydia just left to go meet him. And just like, Uh-oh. yeah. So it's like, oh, everything like falls neatly into place. So again, like I've spent the greater part of this episode just running down, you know, the, the screenplay for being by the numbers. But then it's like, well, sometimes those it's like hitting the right notes. Well, again, like you say that if, um, you know, he was working on the thing in order, maybe he got it together a little bit more toward the end yeah that is a good scene it's maybe not again like not the most like well-crafted one just there's this little crafted in one what sense uh, just just something about it um like structurally or uh i think just screenwriterly yeah because like well again that that dialogue is a little bit of an achilles heel yeah well there's a point when what john says there there may be a crime being committed or something. He says something that is just such a weird phrase. Yeah, and um, you know, with the characters all talking in yeah. a very similar way, like they're in fucking Veronica Mars or something. Yeah, it's just um, like the social worker mm-hmm. talks exactly like Dennis's narration, who sounds a lot like John, who sounds a lot like the therapist. Yeah, that isn't a neat weird character of the social worker though kind of like Jim Darby from Better Off Dead and True Grit she's the mom in Better Off Dead I need to rewatch this movie I didn't even notice that Peru French bread because <laughs> I was like holy shit it's Kim Darby hell yeah it's a good creepy character not unlike the psychic from Poltergeist or like a um Linda Hunt kind of ish yeah. kind of character. How does he kill her? He kills her, right? Yeah, he kills her, but they don't explain it. Like he's he's hiding in the freezer, and yeah. then he kills her because he has it in mind to kill her and kill the two cops that show up. And maybe he doesn't. Maybe he doesn't. Yeah. It, yeah. It, again, there's there's a lot of neat weird stuff like that in this. A- again, getting back to the uncertainty about just what's going on. There's the. There's a part where like that that monster that's been been haunting Dennis is like you have to keep killing and it isn't just I'm gonna threaten you with more nightmares. It's saying you got to keep killing or I'll find another retard and he'll kill you. And then it's like oh like it isn't even within Dennis like there's this much bigger more powerful malevolent force that that has has control of Dennis. So it's like yeah. well all bets are off because then it leads into the scene where 
it's the two of them in the car saying, well, I haven't recognized anyone today. And it's like, how how deep does this go? Yeah. It's great in that the... It's the, like his dreams are rippling outward. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. And that the, the sort of antagonist or, or the, the difficulty that the characters have to overcome is never really that clearly defined. And that I think is interesting is that it isn't that it's vague. It's like you just can't quite get a grasp of it. Well, yeah. And in that respect, it's like a, a chronic condition that you just can't seem to get a, enough of a grasp on to yeah. kick. You know, which maybe plays back into the addiction and maybe the recurring nightmares. You know, if you're like, if you're seized by these constant horrifying dreams, you know, like how many of us are able to just stop having nightmares? That's the horrifying part. Yeah. Which may be why he, um, the filmmaker felt like these couldn't possibly be coming from him because, you know, they're just so dark and malevolent. Yeah. And... And I know that, well, it could possibly be because he was on drugs, that his dreams were that much more intense. Well, but this stemmed from when he was a kid. Oh, okay. I mean, unless he was, uh, you know, shooting heroin at, as a toddler. You never know. <laughs> uh, the, but the, the thing that I'm getting at, though, is that I know, like, I've had dreams that are, are so so vivid that even after you wake up, like you still can't really shake that feeling. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's kind of what he's trying to convey here is that it's like, even though you're awake, you're still like, you still have the sense of these things that happened mm-hmm. because, you know, your mind is still like, oh yeah, I remember that thing. I, you know, I, I remember when I got my tongue ripped out. It's like, no, no, that didn't actually happen. <laughs> it's like, well, it's, no, no, I remember it. I remember vividly. But yeah. It's... Yeah, or um, another thing that happens and, you know, um, if any of you have been on different medications the way I have, um, when you start having incredibly vivid narrative dreams yeah, that have such a strong story and through line, you wake up and you're like, I could almost bash together a script out of that. Yeah. So it's interesting that because of whatever drugs he was on or because of whatever, you know, his damage was, um, yeah, he was able to string together a, a really like pr- provocative unique vision from that that you know for for our benefit he felt like turning into a movie i think that we've we've sung its its praises for sure um i think that maybe the narrative changes too many times um because it it does kind of go in one direction and then it goes in another and it rather than build up um so i mean it is like a nightmare and it does kind of follow that dream logic where you know one compelling but inexplicable thing leads to another but without kind of a coherent through line again he could he could have had a little more you know film schooling just because it's well he learned by doing yeah which again respect and i have to point out it does help if you're the heir to a vast fortune yeah so if any of you (laughs) aren't an heir to a vast fortune i recommend doing that because like Let's be real, like filmmaking is just like a really stupid, costly, quixotic undertaking. What are you getting at, Jen? <laughs> <laughs> well, and the fact that, um, you know, and he was fortunate in that he had these resources available to him. Yeah. Um, and, you know, hey, you know, it's good because he was able to, you know, realize something that stands out beyond... Um, a lot of other dreck, which yeah. falls into the horror genre. 
Uh, again, it's on Amazon uh, streaming rental. Check yeah, it out. If if you're if you if you like horror, this one's a slam dunk for you. Watch and enjoy because it is a close to the heart portrayal of a man beset by his own demons. Thank you.